Today what we're going to do is look at a portion of the sixth uh, chapter in the gospel according to John, and really what it amounts to is an expose, an expose of error. Jesus exposes wrong thinking about who he is, um, and he does it rather powerfully. So we're going to look at an expose where Jesus exposes wrong thinking about who he is, what he came to do. And if you would like an outline this morning, uh, I'll give you uh, six labels, uh, six labels of six errors. I'll try to be a little provocative now and then and try to use things we might say today uh, that would match what was going on then. We're going to begin in verse 16, and we'll see how far we get. Uh, my notes say 16 to 47, but probably not going to happen. Um, but that's going to be the plan for this morning. John 6 is filled with error. We didn't come here today to learn about error. Um, we came here to learn about Jesus from Jesus. And yet these errors that he exposes helps us to see who he really is and to appreciate him, to know that he's trustworthy, to understand how he works, to understand his gospel. And so the errors simply provide a, a platform, an opportunity, if you will. If you don't know it already, John chapter 6 is super controversial. Um, there's a lot of conflict going on. But again, the controversy just tees, tees up the opportunity for us to see and appreciate Christ. And so it's one of those, those texts in the Bible that you, that you maybe don't like sometimes and you love other times, but it's really one we need to grapple with if we're grappling with who Jesus is. I know I'm excited about it. I, I do also want to say, in case I forget to say it later, I think the, the opponents, uh, the people who are misguided and sometimes misguiding, I mean, they're, they're so, sometimes it's like they're so thick-headed and they're so confused about so many things. If they were faking it, if they were acting, they would all deserve Oscars. I mean, you read John 6, and you, it, it's confusing, not because it's confusing, it's confusing because the people are so confused. And you're like, what, what in the world is happening here? And then you keep hearing from Jesus, and you think, he's not confused. Uh, I, I can understand it, but it, it is Oscar-worthy, um, which tells us something about our sin, tells us something about spiritual blindness, tells us something about our need for Christ. But it, it's, it's wild. It's wild. Number one, first error to be exposed by Jesus that can help put us on the right track. Number one, best life now error. Best life now error. This is going to be in verse 16, and we're going to look at a, quite a number of verses. Um, and before we get to the actual best life now error, uh, it, it covers the context. And so this helps us kind of acclimate, understand where they are, what's happening, what's been happening. So let's jump in in verse 16. When evening came... His disciples, Jesus' disciples, went down to the sea. Okay, that's the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Okay, they're on the east side, the less populated side then and now, and they're going to go back to Capernaum on the other side. Okay, Capernaum is on the northwest, so... Uh, they're, they're, they're headed back there is what they're doing. So they're on the less populated side. They're going to the more populated side. Let's keep reading. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Okay. When they're on the east side, Jesus goes into the hill country to get away. And he's not back yet when they leave. Verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. 
when they had rowed about three or four miles, roughly halfway across, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. That's what I underlined. Okay? They leave without him. They don't know where he is. He hasn't come back. They're about halfway. There's a bit of a storm, and they see Jesus walking on the sea. So it's a jaw-dropping moment. And coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment and say, interestingly enough, in the gospel accounts, oftentimes being afraid is associated with the supernatural, okay? Like at the end of Mark. So they were frightened, verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. 21, then they were glad to make to, to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So I don't know how that worked, if there were any sound effects and it was or what, but supernatural things happening. Interestingly enough, John, recording these events, doesn't elaborate. Just what happened. Knowing that they're afraid, knowing how that's used, I say, oh yeah, that's a miracle. But John doesn't talk about it. So we're not going to talk about it this morning. If we were in a different gospel account, we would. But to this morning, we're not going to. They've gone to the other side. Verse 24 tells us they've gone to Capernaum on the northwest. Verse 22 says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, they're still on the east, saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. They're trying to figure this out. How did Jesus, where is Jesus? What's going on? Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias, that's on the west, the populated side, came near the place where they had eaten the bread, the east side, after the Lord had given thanks. So more people are coming. So here, here's what happens. They're in Tiberias, the populated west side. Jesus goes with his disciples to the east side. He feeds the fifteen to 20,000 people. And word is out, Right? Word is out in Tiberias that Jesus is feeding thousands out of next to nothing. It's, it's like, okay, get your wife and kids, you know. Call the cousins. We need to go where the action is. They, there would be no action like that action. Best food you've ever had, and it's free. Okay? Being a little bit silly about it, but it would make sense why they're, they're, they're heading over there. This is the place to be. There's nothing like this. Supernatural things are happening. Let's, let's make our way over there. It's reasonable. I called it a first century flash feast. Okay? Let's go. Everybody's tweeting about it. Okay, let's go to verse 24. So when the crowd... I want to emphasize that. You'll see why. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So we've got a crowd seeking Jesus. They go from one side to the other side. And now they're going to go back to the other side, up a little bit north. So there's a lot of them. They're seekers is what they are. Verse 25 says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? And I think it's meant to be read like that. When did you come here? And now comes a rebuke. Jesus is going to expose their motives. How about verse 26? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. You'd think that would be commendable. 
Not because you saw signs. Signs prove that He's the Messiah. He's the Deliverer. He's the long-awaited one. Not because of that. Notice what it says in 26 at the end. But because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's a rebuke. Paddling your brains out. Sailing your brains out. However they're doing it. And they're seeking. They're after him from one side to the other. No small effort. And they're all about figuring out where he is. And and why did you come here? What happened? We did all this efforting, all this seeking. And Jesus says, you've not sought after me for the right reason. All of your efforting, hard work is for the wrong reason. See, this, it's this kind of stuff. It's not just this. It's this kind of stuff that leads us to 666 that we read earlier. And many of his disciples, they don't, they're lowercase d followers. They don't follow anymore. Because Jesus isn't trying to sell anything. Okay? This is marketing failure 101. He's not giving the people what they want. But he's speaking the truth to them. You, you've come after me for the wrong reason. You've come after me to to have your temporary needs met. And you've pursued that with passion. I'm not here, Messiah, as Messiah to meet your temporary needs. Whether it be toppling the Roman government and Roman army or filling your bellies. Okay, that's what's happening here. They're failing to see him for who he truly is. And it shows up that they're coming to him for the wrong things. It's helpful for us to remember this as as we sometimes try to sell the gospel and to sell Jesus to people. And if you believe in Jesus, you'll have better relationships. If you believe in Jesus, you'll be wealthy, some say. If you believe in Jesus, your life is going to be better. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to be healthier. Jesus came as the Redeemer. Jesus came as the Messiah. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Jesus came that we might know God and as He keeps saying, have eternal life where we would be, and He's going to say this, raised up, not now, on the last day. Okay? So, we, we, we don't want to sell people Jesus and tell them that He's going to do something that He's not going to do because they end up believing in a different Jesus. And so, this is happening before our very eyes. Verse 27 says, Do not work for the food that perishes. They've been doing all this paddle working, right? They've been working, working, working. Don't work for food that perishes, for for your life now to be good. 27 goes on to say, But for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man, that's a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the Son of Man will give you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. Jesus is saying, and and He's not the mean guy, He's the loving guy, but He's saying, you've got it all wrong. I'm the Son of Man promised in the Old Testament that you say you believe in. And if that's true, by the way, if we were to look at that text, 
He's the one whose kingdom, says in Daniel 7, will last forever into eternity. So it makes sense that he's going to give eternal life because those are the people, the people who have eternal life who will be in his eternal kingdom. Not in the here and now. Remember, I'm even thinking in my mind right now that Jesus, said, Jesus says on another occasion, my kingdom is not of this world. It's different. It's different. It's about the eternal, not the temporal. So lots of efforting, but lots of misguided efforting. I mean, you could say, these people, these people are dedicated. They're freakishly dedicated. And Jesus says, no, no. And we're going to read on later. He says no, so that hopefully they'll see who he really is and come to him for the right reasons. Okay, let's move on to another one. Next error to be exposed by Jesus that can help us see him for who he really is and be on the right path so that we might help others as well. Number two, Christians are miracle workers. The Christians are miracle workers. 28 says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? What, what must we do to be doing miracles? And, and here's where I'm going... I'm totally confused. But it's not confusing if we just keep following Jesus, but I'm totally confused as to where in the world that came from. He wasn't just talking about that. He was talking about how they should work, right? If you're going to effort and pursue Jesus with all of your paddling, you should work hard because you're going to go to the one who can give you eternal life. Don't work for the wrong things. And they're saying, how can we do the works of God? It's like they took this word and isolated it and developed a whole different concept and you're thinking, are you, are you totally irrational? Interestingly enough, Jesus takes them where they are and he's going to respond. I mean, this is baffling to the mind, but Jesus answers their question. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. How about that? You want to have a miracle happen? A miracle would be that you would believe me and trust me. And I think we, we're kind of warming up to that idea. Yeah. I mean, it would take a miracle to, miracle to get through to these people, right? And I don't want to get us too far off track on the miracle of faith because faith is a gift and it's granted, but that's true and we're going we're gonna to see that it's necessary. Believe in Jesus. And if you believed in Jesus, you would have just experienced a miracle. It makes me think of John chapter 3 and the sovereign act of the Spirit. Man, verse 30 says, look there if you would. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Proof after proof after proof, sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle after miracle, and here they are. Just prove it. 
Oh, you want us to believe? You want us to trust in you? Just, just give us a sign and we'll do it. And again, I'm going, what? Indeed, it would take a miracle to get these folks to believe. He's been doing signs. He's been doing miracles. He's been tangibly before watching eyes, satisfying people, doing amazing things. And they say, well, if you would just do a miracle, we would believe. If we can't do them ourselves, then you should at least prove it. This is enlightening, I think, on different levels for us. You know, even those things he was doing and has been doing were not ever designed to be ends in and of themselves. They were all designed to point to the fact that he's legitimate and he must be trusted in. Let's move on. The next error to be exposed by Jesus that can help us be on the right path would be that we already know God. These folks already claim to know God. And by the way, they already claim to know the Bible. And you and I engage people all the time that say they already know God apart from Jesus. Or maybe they know Jesus in a different way. And oftentimes they know Bible verses. But there's a difference between knowing God through Christ. And there's a difference between knowing Bible verses and knowing the Bible. And Jesus is going to expose these individuals as not knowing God and not actually knowing the Bible. You know, just as, a, as an aside, one thing I like about what we do here week in and week out when we study a gospel account is we see Jesus engaging all different kinds of people. Legalists, you know, conservatives, liberals, religious people, non-religious people, people who are part of the right religion, people who are part of the wrong religion. We see him engaging all different kinds of people. And I love it because even though we don't realize it's happening, we're getting equipped because we engage all different kinds of people. I love that. It's happening here. It's happening before our very eyes, I think. Okay. The people respond to Jesus when he says this in verse 31 with this. Our fathers. That's a claim to authority, by the way. A claim to the right lineage. Our fathers. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Okay, We're related to the right people. We're related to the people who experienced miraculous things. So we know things. We know things like nobody else knows things. Okay? My last name's Davidson. In other words, you get the idea. Son of David. I mean, they, they, they've got the Jewish lineage. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. We can tell you a thing or two, Jesus. And then, as it is written, and we know Bible verses, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. There you go. It's our heritage. We have Bible verses to prove it. We know all about the supernatural and how it works. We're authorities here. We know what happened with Moses. We're Moses people. 
You can't judge us. We know what we've experienced, right? So then let's keep going. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you, he's referring to you and and your ancestors, he's not denying that. It, it, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father, maybe let's put the stress where it should be, but my father, remember they've been upset that he's claiming to be the son because that would mean God is his father. He's unique beyond everybody else. It, was, it wasn't Moses, it was God. No, he doesn't say that. It was my father gives you the bread from heaven. And which would be more significant? Moses, who is a legitimate big shot, right in the Bible, or the divine, eternal son who's face to face with God. It's a, it's a dumb moment, right? Jesus is saying, first of all, you're a little fuzzy in the way you've spun the story. and You put too much emphasis on Moses, right? You've, you've become so committed to hagiography. That's a big fancy word because you came to church today and paid good money for it. I figured I'd give you a theological word. Hagiography comes from the Greek word for holiness. It's when we, we, we think people can do no wrong. Sinners can do no wrong. Okay, lots of biographies are actually hagiography. We don't point out any of the faults. Moses, 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 Moses. Yeah, Moses is a patriarch. Moses is a hero. Moses is really important. But before you know it, you forget that Moses was a sinner and the emphasis is actually on God. So Jesus, number one, helps them to to, to help with their hagiography problem. Moses wasn't the big shot. God was the one who did this. In and through Moses, yes. And by the way, that God who did that is my Father. You have no authority on me. I know what I'm talking about. Is what Jesus is getting at. See, you see why we get to 666. Many of his disciples said, "Ah, I think I'm going to follow somebody else. But I, I can't help but try to remind you, because we don't like negativity, this is good and right because it helps us to not have Jesus the idol, but Jesus the true Son who came to make God known to us. In the long run, this is good for us to hear. How about 33? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Physical bread brings temporal life. I'm the bread of God and I've come to give eternal life. 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always that's a beautiful that's a beautiful request isn't it i love that that's 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 awesome that's a, that's a great response if that's true that he's he's going to give the bread that will give you eternal life better than the manna temporal life better than the than the loaves and the fishes temporal life that's so awesome that's where we want to be give us this bread and i love the way it's worded give us this bread always Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's all been about pointing to Him. There's something to learn about the manna in the wilderness. Ultimately, there's something to learn from the feeding of the 5,000 and temporal life that comes from eating. And here it is. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. And he explains, and this becomes important in later weeks, what he means by being the bread of life. He says, believe in me. Come to me. It's wonderful. Mentally, I... I think it's good to make a connection to chapter 5 when Jesus talked about Moses. And remember when he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he spoke of me. So Jesus isn't discounting Moses. Jesus would affirm Moses. It's their, their twisted, again, I called it hagiography view. It's just it's their, it's their, their wrong understanding. They know the Bible, right? You know, wink, wink. Maybe they used to, but they are, they're missing the point now. So maybe before we move on, many people claim to know God. But these folks don't have eternal life. And many people claim to know Bible verses and know the Bible because they know Bible verses. But that's different than knowing what the Bible is actually about and knowing what it actually means by what it says. And we need to remember that. And that doesn't make us mean. It actually makes us equipped. How are we doing? I'm excited about this. I want to know Jesus better. Let's move on to the next one. Number four, next error being exposed by Jesus that can set us on the right path to understanding Him. Number four, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. In other words, show me and I'll believe. Give me objectivity. Give me real history. Do a miracle in front of me. And if you do that, I'll believe. Because seeing is believing. How about verse 36? But I said to you, this is Jesus, that you have seen me. Okay, eyewitness testimony, objectivity, real time, real space. You have seen me and yet do not believe. They're asking for bread. Give us this bread. And Jesus isn't like, hmm, I better strike while the iron's hot, so I'll bait and switch him. No, he's going to be truthful with them. You've seen me. You've experienced. And you don't believe. So much for the request of miracles earlier, too. They're refusing to believe in him for eternal life. I think we can do this one rather quickly. And by way of application, I just heard this last week, or maybe the week before, someone saying, How can we know that Christianity is any different from any other religion? 
Okay, we hear that. It's not that different from these people saying, show us a miracle. Show us. We can't know. And Jesus says, you've seen me and you don't believe. So number one, why is it that we think if we could just show them and prove them, they would believe when these people were looking face to face with Jesus and they didn't believe? See, it's a spiritual problem. It's not just an evidence problem. And secondarily, if we have Jesus, as I like to stress all of the time, as the historic figure, okay, with eyewitnesses, even opponent eyewitnesses, raised from the dead. You know what? How do we know it's different? Well, let's start with this place called Nazareth. Let's talk about history. We're not talking about some kind of golden plates that showed up to somebody that can't be found. We're not talking about made-up stuff. We're talking about historic Jesus. Seeing is not believing. Now, so that, that helps me when I engage that person, I interact with that person. I do want to help them. I do want to explain things to them. But I also want to know that I could beckon Jesus down from heaven and have him stand next to me and have him punch him in the nose like I want to. No, not really. Believe now? <laughs> no. And they still wouldn't believe. Apart from God doing something in their heart. This is why we would say evidence doesn't demand a verdict. They've got all the evidence in the world and they're coming to the wrong conclusions. I like evidence. I like history. I like archaeology. I like geography. I like knowing about the historical Jesus. It's all good and important, but it doesn't change anybody's heart. It didn't then, so it won't now. Now, to to be a little facetious, let's play this out. If it weren't Jesus, it might be, at this point, it's a a hand-wringing crisis. And oh no, maybe we need a different plan. We need a plan B and we need to, you know, send the marketing team back to the conference room and they've got to come up with a new plan and something different because this isn't working. It's not effective. Let's reorg. Maybe something harsher. Maybe something softer. Instead, what Jesus does now is he tells us how all of this works. You don't want to miss this part. Number five, you win some and you lose some. Okay? That's the error. You win some, you lose some. How about 37? Here's Jesus. Here's how he responds. Not with hand-wringing. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I highlighted and underlined because it's worth the double bonus. All and will. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Amidst all of the opposition and all the conflict and all the people seeing him and not believing, he says, let me just make one thing clear. And I think he's making it clear to us too in the 21st century. Let me make something clear about how this works. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. 
It's a spiritual thing and it has to be an act of God. By the way, the work of God is believing. And so all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's tractor beam. It's going to happen. It's awesome. So instead of trying to come up with a plan B, he's sticking to the plan, okay? The Father giving plan. And they'll come. And then he says, and, and whoever comes to me, and remember, the whoever comes are the ones that the Father gives. He's not trying to balance two things out here. He's just further explaining. And all of the ones who are given, who come, whoever of those coming, I will never cast out. In other words, I will keep them. I will keep them. They're mine. I love them. They belong to me. They've been given to me by my Father. And we're a part of the same plan and the same team. That's how this works. It's awesome. We're going to get more of this in John 10. We're going to get more of this in John 17. So I won't do it now, but it's awesome. 38, for I have come down from heaven. Here's why I came. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm sticking to the plan. This is how it works. This is how it is. This is God's purpose. And there's nothing that will stop this from happening. So I'm going to stick to that plan. I'm doing His will. Divine purpose. 39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's just reiterating and, and driving home what he said in verse 37. I'll lose none. But on the last day, notice there is a last day. And on the last day, he's going to raise them all up. All the ones that the Father gave, they're all going to be raised up. By the way, how, how is it that they're going to be raised up? Think big picture in John. What have we learned about resurrection already in John? Jesus says, on the last day, I'm going to raise all those who were given to me up. A hint would be John chapter 2. Jesus talks about his being destroyed and his body being raised up. Okay? I know that's a duh, kind of obvious. But the way he can raise up all those given to him is because of His resurrection. And when we trust in Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, we're united to Him. So all of this is based upon His work of redemption that will happen when He goes to the cross and then He is raised from the dead. It's fascinating and amazing. You might put it this way. How can we know that everyone given to Him by the Father will be raised up? How can we know that this is going to happen? We can know that this is going to happen. Oh, because Jesus says but also because Jesus did. Right? That's how he can say this. That's why we love the empty tomb. It's why we love Easter. It's why we love resurrection. Because that is the key to our being raised up. It's his being raised up. In so many ways, I wish we could just read all of John every time we read any of it. Because then we'd remember that. Oh, he talked about resurrection. It's his resurrection. And his resurrection guarantees our resurrection because the Father gave us to him. There's so many buts about this. I just wrote but, 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 and I gave some objections. I'm not going to give them to you now. There are so many objections that come all over the place, but just know that Jesus has been super clear. 
all given to me, I won't get rid of, I'll raise them up. So I don't need to change my plan. Then how about verse 40? For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, he's saying the same thing, looks on and believes, in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. Don't come after me to meet your temporal needs. I came to give eternal life and I will resurrect everyone who comes to me in faith. Oh, we need to be done. Let's, we won't go to the next point, but there are a few more verses that still go with this. So, so let's, let's look at their response. 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. I'm sitting here going, this is awesome. Can't be lost. He's going to keep us given by the Father. And evidence of all that great stuff is that I've believed in Jesus. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me. Uh Uh-oh, more controversy. Man, 666 is making a lot more sense. How about this one? Sit down for this one. 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's one of those dun, 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 dun moments. But here's the thing. The Jews grumbled about this. Why do we grumble about it? If there's one thing professing Christians grumble about a lot, it's this sort of thing. But we don't realize we're sounding in our grumbling because we don't want God to be sovereign. That's what we're saying. In our grumbling, we're giving ourselves away. We sound just like unbelievers who haven't experienced saving faith. The believer doesn't argue about God's fairness and all of this stuff. It doesn't mean we don't have questions. But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You can fight with that. Or you can say, I'm so glad. Because apart from the work of God, which is believing in the Son... I never would believe in him. I would be just like these guys. Where the evidence is not demanding a verdict. I'd be just like them. And so it's better to be on the other side and say, the only reason I'm here today, the only reason I'm a Christian, the only reason I believe in Jesus is because God did something. God did something. He did something first. He did something powerful. He, oh, why do we say God saves? (sighs) 
Because God saves. And Jesus quotes a Bible passage in 45. Last verse, I promise. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught of God. Or taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is Jeremiah 31 talk. New Covenant talk. This is a big deal because of what it says about Jesus. I'm the one the Old Testament promised. It's a big deal as well because he's saying, I'm the New Covenant fulfillment. I'm, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the Jeremiah 31 one. And I don't mean verse one. I'm that one. I'm the one who brings fulfillment. So it's a huge big deal because of what it says about Jesus. The Old Testament talks about a new covenant, which assumes that the Old Covenant had a born-on date. Follow me? That there was going to be an expiration. Doesn't mean the Old Covenant is bad, but by virtue of the fact that it's an Old Covenant and the Old Testament, the Old Covenant itself talks about a new covenant, means it's going to come to an end because it'll be fulfilled in the new covenant. And here Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm that one. And he's also saying that Jeremiah 31 reality is talking about what is happening before our very eyes. You who are believing have been taught of God. God did this. There's more involved in New Covenant stuff. You could look up Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 12. There's more involved in the significance and implications of what we're talking about. But he is saying, I'm the one you were not waiting for, but should have been waiting for. And it is a sovereign act of God for this to happen. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father as Jeremiah said they would, comes to me. What I would encourage you to do today is go home and just read John 6. And don't be confused by Jesus' words. Be confused by their words because they're confused. Okay? But Jesus keeps bringing it back to the main idea. Okay? But we need to be done for now. As someone else has said, it's the most controversial book in the whole Bible, the gospel according to John. Okay? And as one pastor said, what in the world are we doing telling unbelievers to read it? Because it doesn't sell well. It doesn't sell well with Christians. But by the way, Jesus isn't selling anything. Hard words of Jesus that are true words... And what we want is to be like Peter. Where else should we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And we've come to believe in you. See? It's amazing. You can't make this stuff up. I would never, ever do this if I started a religion. It's crazy. But because God is sovereign and God saves, it's not crazy. Okay, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who voluntarily, because he loved us, came here to do all of these things. That he came to speak and to speak clearly and to speak boldly 
And we know that He came to do more than speak. We're thankful that He is tried and tested. He was successful in doing everything to glorify You and honor You and that He went to the cross on our behalf voluntarily even though it was going to mean something horrific and terrible. That He would atone for our rebellion. And we're thankful that you saw fit to have him be our substitute in our place. And we are thankful that the payment has been made in full and that our sins are now not held against us. We're thankful that Jesus is raised from the dead and that he's raised from the dead, not just as a proof, though it's certainly that, that he's raised from the dead because he's the firstborn among many so that we might have eternal life. Please allow us to love him and worship him and honor him as he should be also allow us opportunities to speak appropriately to others about Jesus with love and compassion and concern as would fit the moment. In Jesus' name, amen.